The scripture reading tonight is Psalm 95. Psalm 95. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with the songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For as at Moriah, as on the day of Messiah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. And God, we come now and bow our hearts before you, asking that you would speak your truth into our hearts. And we ask that you would form and shape our faith so that as we hear your word preached, that we might respond with faith and faithfulness reflected in the ordinary moments of everyday life. To your glory, we ask. Amen. I came home one day after to witness rather an interesting sight at my house. Daniel, of course, who else, right, was carrying around a label maker. Now, to his defense, he carries around a lot of things, but uh, those random items, uh, they function as weapons. Uh, But on this particular night, he wasn't threatening any of his siblings, so I knew something was off. And so I asked my wife, what is going on? And why is Daniel carrying that label maker around? She said to me, Daniel asked me what it was, and I said, it's a label maker, and he misheard. Now... He thinks it's a Lego maker. (laughs) I could not let him go on living like this. So I sat Daniel down and told him the truth. Your mother lied to you. No, just kidding. I said, no, buddy. That thing does not make Legos. And I proceeded to show him what it does. Now, you have to understand that there are very few things in this world Daniel loves more than Legos. His blanket, mac and cheese, and I think that's it. (laughs) When he found out the truth, boy, his world came falling apart. He was devastated. He was crushed. Now, whether we realize it or not, this is our story. We tell ourselves that things, like a label maker, you might have your own version of that, success, 
relationships, recognition, and the list goes on. These things will somehow satisfy the longings of our hearts. And so we attribute ultimate worth and value and we hold on to them. Believing in the promise that only if I had more, that my life could be complete. The Bible calls this worship. And misplaced worship leads to ruin and distortion of God's image in us. And here in Psalm 95, the Bible offers a better way. Worship that leads to life. Worship that leads to restoration. Worship that leads to flourishing of all. So tonight we're going to look at two things. First, let's look at worship together. The Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? The answer, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. This catechism not only addresses the big questions of life, purpose, and meaning, but it also speaks to the centrality of worship. You see, the word worship, derived from an old English word meaning worth-ship, is the act of attributing or giving worth, praise, and glory to God. And even after the fall in Genesis chapter 3, the instinct to worship, although disordered, remains intact. We are worshipers by design, and that means we can't ever turn it off. We can only switch the object of our worship. And that's true even today among modern secularists. Charles Taylor, a Canadian philosopher and the author of the influential book, A Secular Age, observed that even in this secular world, people have not, mis- they have not subtracted God, but replaced him with what he calls exclusive humanism, a belief that one can find meaning and significance without a transcended God. Secularism, in this sense, is the latest version of the Tower of Babel, where people try to find meaning and significance on their own apart from God. And the Bible calls this idolatry. Now, most of us in 21st century America, we don't bow before a wooden image, but we do worship. We worship all kinds of things as we turn to career, to physical beauty, to relationships, to our comforts for our ultimate glory and joy. We would never say it, but we say somewhere in the deep recesses of our hearts as we turn to these things, save me, deliver me. The danger of idolatry, as we have said earlier, is dehumanization. We lose the very glory that's been put into us to reflect back to God who we are, the glimpse of him in us. The famous theologian Greg Beale writes in his book, We Become What We Worship, writes this, and I think he's right. He says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. You see, this is a tragedy of idolatry. When we bow at the altar of accomplishment, physical beauty, relationships, and comforts, we conform to its image and its likeness, and it further distorts the image of God in us. And the Bible warned of this, not only in the New Testament with Pauline epistles, but way back in Psalm chapter 115, verse 4 and following, the author writes to us, 
But their idols are silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. Eyes, but cannot see. They have ears, but cannot hear. Noses, but cannot smell. They have hands, but cannot feel. Feet, but cannot walk. Nor can they utter a sound with their throats. In other words, the author here in Psalm 15 points to the incompetence of the idols to whom we bow before. As we turn to these things to buy their lies, to latch on to their promise that if we can have it or more of it, that we would be complete. The Bible says, no. You're going to conform to its likeness, its image. And in verse 8, this is what he says. Those who make them will be like them, and so will all who trust in them. We have all seen this movie before, have we not? We know where this path leads. And the world has caught on. David Foster Wallace, an atheist author and thinker, agrees. And I think I shared this quote before, but it's worth repeating. He goes on to say, If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally grieve you. Worship power. You will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over those others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect. Being seen as smart, you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. The Bible offers a better way, better worship, a better future, better community, better society, and it, begun, it begins with the people of God and responding to the words here in Psalm 95. As we lay aside the idols and silence the lies we often latch on to. And to hold on to the words of God and bow our hearts before him. Hear these words again in Psalm 95. Oh come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is the great God, the King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it and the hand and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. It is here as we bow before our king, as we humble ourselves and to surrender to his word, his way, that we find our created purpose, that we grow into the very thing that God has designed us for. And that is not only for us, but the community we're part of and the world we're called to be in. If you want to be salt and light, it begins here. Yes, we certainly need to engage the society, the city, and all that's broken about it. But if we overlook this very important first step, 
the Bible would say you got it all backwards. Because if you are not a worshiper of God, and if you're not transformed and moved by the presence of God and the gospel of Christ, then whatever you do out there will be short-lived. And we all know that, don't we? Anyone remember their New Year resolution? That's what I thought. Now, some of you are like, yes. Now, I'm not talking about you, but I'm talking about the rest of us, the 99% of us. As Greg Beale said, our worship puts us on a trajectory, either to ruin or restoration. And it is here in our worship of God, the King, the Creator, the Shepherd, that we conform to his image and his likeness and experience true humanity and advocate for human flourishing for all. And that's what David is getting at, starting with verse 7 and on. Here, the psalm takes on a more somber note, and David cautions us to not simply be moved by a song or even be inspired by a sermon, but to attribute the highest worth. Remember worship? Worship? To attribute the highest worth, praise and glory to God that creates an openness of heart and a posture of surrender to his word so that when we hear his voice, We do not dismiss it, but we bow before it and with faith and faithfulness apply ourselves in the ordinary. Today, David warns in verse 7, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen, listen and obey the word of God. The passage quoted refers to the children of Israel testing of the Lord in Exodus chapter 17 at the waters of Meribah and Moses' unfaithfulness at the waters of Massa in Numbers chapter 20. The passage for the message for David's audience is clear that worship leads to hearing his voice. That's why the psalm does not end with simply celebrating the grace of God and kneeling and bowing before him, but it continues to listening with a strong word of caution, so that we, as we behold the presence of God and the promise of God, that we would apply it into our life, the truth and the will of God. I don't know what worship would look like for you, but for me, it means that I change how I feel and how I deal with bad drivers in Washington, D.C. Even today, On our way here, I was reminded again that I got long ways to go. And if I'm not careful, I will be unsanctified by all the bad drivers in the city. And for me, worship means attributing worth to God and his way. To look at people not as obstacles in my way to church, but as glorious beings, image bearers. To celebrate, to know, to love. It means that I am patient with my kids to give them focused attention, not just leftovers, and check off a box. Even when they ask for the hundredth time, who will win in a fight, Thanos or Superman, to engage them meaningfully as if I want to talk about those things. It means that I care about the city and the people in it. 
not just those who show up here on Sunday evenings, but even the marginalized, the invisible. What's my attitude towards them? Am I prayerful? Am I thinking of ways to build bridges to love them? Or are they just a prop on the street? You see, worship affects everything. And to attribute the highest praise to God means that we adopt his ways. Not comfort, not convenience, but his will. What would that look like for you? But all this begs the question, how do we worship like this? Because I don't know about you, worshiping God in this way is very difficult. I won't last. I'm not that good. I'm not that disciplined. I'm not that spiritual. Where's our hope? Let's end with our second point. Welcome. H.W. Brands, a New York Times bestselling author, wrote a book entitled The General Versus the President. He's a big fan of both, uh, which looks at the relationship between General MacArthur and President Truman after World War II. Now, I'm sure you have your opinions about MacArthur. This is Washington after all. But all things aside, MacArthur was an interesting person, a larger-than-life personality, to say the least. And in the book, Brands tells many stories about MacArthur, Uh, This one story stuck out to me. A man who had been dubbed, uh, basically, MacArthur was uh, entering the elevator in Daiichi, his Tokyo residence, after the war, when a Japanese man inside the, the elevator recognized him and bowed and started to step out of the elevator. MacArthur insisted that he remain, and they rode together. Now, MacArthur had been in Asia for a long time, and he knew the cultural nuances and the protocol. And he knew how countercultural it would have been for him to insist that this Japanese man would ride in the elevator with him. Many days later, MacArthur received a letter from this man, and it read, I am the humble Japanese carpenter who last week you not only permitted, but insisted ride with you in the same elevator. I have reflected on this act of courtesy for a whole week. And I realize that no Japanese general would have done as you did. What left such an impact on this Japanese carpenter? It was the act of undeserved, unexpected kindness to a man who until recently was an enemy. The Bible calls this grace. In Psalm 95, God extends this very grace to us. People who were once far away, once who were rebellious. And it's this act of grace that invites us to come into his presence, to behold him, and by doing so, become like him. It really is, in many ways, the undoing of sin. Undoing of the curse of sin we see in Genesis chapter 3. If you know your scripture, you know that something tragic happened in Genesis chapter 3. A gap after the fall existed between God and fallen man. 
And in the final scene of Genesis chapter 3, God stations an angel with a flaming sword to guard Eden's entrance. And that began the first great migration. And the book of Genesis tells us that people moved further east, away from the presence of God, until in Genesis chapter 11, they discovered the land of Shinar and decided to build the Tower of Babel that would reach the heavens. You see, the account of Tower of Babel is more than just a failed project. It was man's attempt to claim or reclaim what was lost without God. This parable of some sort, if you will, underlines an important theological proposition that many of us already know. Man cannot reach God. God has to reach us. We cannot reach God through our accomplishments. We cannot reach God through our good works. And we cannot reach God even through our religion. God must act. He must bridge that gap. And he did. That's why David can confidently say, Come, let us appear before God. This is a stark contrast to what we read in Exodus chapter 19. Day before the Israelites were to appear before God at Mount Sinai. After the ritual of cleansing themselves, God says to everyone, Do not let them come near the foot of the mountain. Let let them not come touch even the piece of it, lest they die. Yet here in Psalm 95, David says, No, no, come. Come into the presence of God. Why? Because God has done something. And we see that in the context of Psalm 95. A famous Old Testament commentator, Derek Kidner, says that Psalm 95 was one of the songs that the Israelite community would have sung during the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, Feast of Tabernacle is one of those interesting feasts that required every Israelite to actually come to Jerusalem, and unlike just celebrating, they were to build huts. And during the seven days, they lived in these huts. They ate, and some actually slept in them, in order to remember how the Israelites for 40 days lived in huts in the wilderness. But it wasn't just a time to remember the hut and the challenges of tiny space, but it was also to remember and celebrate All the events surrounding the Exodus. God's salvation from Egypt. Provision of food and water in the wilderness. The gifts of law and land. And the promise of Sabbath rest to come. As they sat in these little huts eating their food. They recalled the mercy and the grace of God that was demonstrated in the Exodus. In all the ways that God provided for them. And the promise of rest that was yet to come. And at the center of this feast was the temple. You couldn't miss it. It dwarfed all the other buildings around it. And it was a reminder that God came to tabernacle with them. But we still haven't answered the question, how can a holy God dwell among sinful people? So he is there. The temple is there in the midst of all the little huts as people remember and celebrate it. But how can this be? How can God, who demands justice, simply come and show up and dwell among his people? Well, the Feast of Tabernacle, if you know the Jewish calendar, follows 
the Day of Atonement. You know what that is? It's a national day where all of Israel gather together, and it's their version of confession and pardon. Once a year, the high priest would enter the most holy place to atone for the sins of God's people. And on this day, the high priest had to follow strict guidelines outlined in the law because, listen carefully, atonement for sin was to be done God's way. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And for that reason, God instituted the sacrificial system, and what mercy it is. We skip over Leviticus unless we have trouble sleeping at night, but really, if you understand what's going on in Exodus, the giving of the law, the high watermark of what the people are to aim for, you better believe they were looking for a sacrificial system of some sort. How can man ever achieve such high standards? Praise God for his mercy in giving us this system by which we can atone for our sin. That something else would take our place, and through the shedding of its blood, that we would find forgiveness of sin and receive the welcome of God. You see, all of this was an object lesson that was pointing to the greater reality that would culminate in the ministry and the person of Jesus Christ. In the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 1, verse 14, that word became flesh and he dwelt among us. How can God, a holy God, dwell among sinful people? Because God had done something for us. And it wasn't the sacrifice of these animals in the Old Testament because they too were looking forward to the sacrifice that was coming. It was the blood of Christ that was shed on the cross for us where he took on the full wrath of God in our place. And through the shedding of his blood, now we have access to our God. We are forgiven, we're received, we're adopted, we're celebrated as his children. And so now we can come to the throne of grace, not having to wonder if we're going to get struck by God, if somehow we don't meet up to that standard know all that's been taken care of. You and I, we can come into the presence of God boldly with confidence, knowing that all the riches of heaven is promised to us. You see, this is what we mean by the gospel. The gospel, the good news of Christian faith is that God has done something. That he paid the ultimate price to welcome you and I. Genesis chapter 3 closes with the word go. You can't stay here. But in the gospel, Jesus has come. All you who are weary and heavy laden, trying to muster up some sort of spiritual merit, come.
put all that aside. You can't do it anyway. Come and find rest in me. You see, Jesus in those words fulfills Psalm 95. That we find our rest in Christ, not by good works, but by faith. As we say, here I am, I can't do it. And if we get this gospel, if we can latch onto it, sit before it, and allow this message to marinate deep into our hearts, to give shape to our faith, then we will gladly assign the highest praise, highest glory, highest worship to our God. And it will become our joy, our delight to worship in the way that God calls us to. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have made a way. You knew we could never find our way back. We tried at the Tower of Babel, and we try now. It's evident in the ways that we latch on to the idols of this world and their promises. But you see right through them, and you tell us to come, find rest in you to find rest in the finished work of Christ, to see and to know your delight in us. May this gospel go deep into our hearts and may it fuel us to faith and faithfulness as we seek to obey you in the ordinary. In Christ's name, amen.